Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey, guys, it's Russell. Today on the show, we have Steve Mesler. Steve is a three-time Olympian, world champion, World Cup overall champion, and Olympic gold medalist in four-man bobsled. He was named one of Sports Illustrated's renowned Athletes Who Care and was a 2011 nominee for the International Champion for Peace Award. A TED-Ed educator and corporate leadership consultant, Steve has spoken around the world on the values of educating students through technology and mentorship. Steve is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Classroom Champions. Classroom Champions has been recognized by the United States Olympic Committee and the White House and has received numerous international awards. Steve, we are honored to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. This is great. We're pumped to talk to you. You're our first gold medalist on the show. And also, it's in bobsled, which is really interesting, really cool. That was 62 years since the last gold medal for the United States. So, I mean, that's cool. (laughs) And Ben and I were just kind of talking, and we don't really know what it's like to even have a gold medal. What's one of the most unexpected benefits to having one? Um, Your neck gets really strong. (laughs) How, How much does it weigh? You know what? Shockingly, not as if I say it out loud, how much it actually weighs, and it seems really light. It's only like a pound and a quarter. Okay. But when you know you are used to anything else that would be around your neck would be ounces. So uh, yeah, that's the first thing everybody says when they when they hold it is, "Man, this thing's heavy." And that's the first thing we said when we got on the podium and they put them around the necks, and we started laughing and joking as soon as we got them up. There was, "Oh my god, these things are heavy." <laughs> so do you find any of those extra neck muscles transferring to anything else in your life, or is it mostly just uh, the way you look? Well, I don't bother. It would have been really helpful if I kept bobsledding because I mean, your neck gets blown apart bobsledding, but it doesn't really do me any good anymore. So. <laughs> So quickly to the Olympics, I've had goosebumps before, but I can't really picture what you're feeling like when you stand on top of the podium. I would imagine it's some sort of elation. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I always kind of, I always kind of thought that I would get up there and I would just cry like a little kid. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing. What happens is you get up there and all of a sudden it's like all of your emotions are trying to like jam themselves through these little eyeballs and they just can't come out. And I remember just, I mean, even as the flag went up, I had one tear coming down and I actually remember standing there and as the flag's coming up and, you know, at the Olympics, they don't take a chance that, you know, the wind won't be blowing. So the flags won't be like in this perfect thing. So they, you know, they kind of frame them out. So they go up and they look really perfect as opposed to anywhere else I've ever seen a flag go up. It kind of just gets dragged up. Um, And if it's, you know, if the wind's blowing, then it's lucky to be, you know, flying that way. And I remember actually sitting up there, standing up there and halfway through the Star Spangled Banner thinking, huh, look at that. Flag's perfectly square. And then I had to kind of shake my head out and just pay attention to what's happening right now. That's funny. And uh, yeah, that's what I remember about it. It was very surreal. You know, a year earlier, we had won world championships for the first time in 50 years for the U.S. And we had a guy on a team named Justin Olson. And Justin at the time was, he was the baby on the team. He was nine years younger than myself, seven years younger than, than Kurt and Steve, the other two guys on the team. And we were standing behind the podium at Worlds. And, you know, it was my eighth or ninth year in the sport. And it was his second year in the sport. 
And I remember turning to him being like, it's not, you know, right before we got called to walk up and step on top of the podium, it was in Lake Placid, it was actually our home track. And I turned to him, I was like, it's not this easy. Because I didn't want him thinking going into Olympic year that this is how easy it is. And then I remember right before we took our step, the Canadians got their bronze medal and the Germans got their silver medal. And right before they called us up to get our gold medal at the Olympics, I turned to him and I go, huh, well, maybe it is this easy. <laughs> and then, you know, Team USA, Olympic champions, and up we go. So that was, uh, those are the moments that I remember. Very neat. Yeah, there's a lot that we can talk about today, Steve. And you, you do a lot of speaking and have some really valuable advice. So we have 30 minutes. And okay. in this 30 minutes, we're going to try to squeeze in uh, your life and some of the decisions that you've made, which have eventually led you to the success that you've seen. So let's first go back to how you got introduced to bobsledding. Uh, we saw that you were a decathlete in University of Florida. How do you go from running decathlons to bobsledding? You lose a bet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, you know what? I was national champion when I was in high school, and I went to Florida. I went to the place where you go to be the best. And then I got to Florida and I got hurt and then I got healthy and then I got hurt and then I got healthy. Then I got hurt. Um, and I actually hurt myself my senior year in high school tore my hamstring. So it wound up being five years of injuries in track and field. And I actually did if, um, the listeners hop on to Ted ed. So the Ted's, you know, Ted's big mm-hmm. Ted talks. Um, they have an education platform. We actually did a little cartoon about making decisions and about my story. And what I talked about was that, you know what, it was, five years of injuries and I just wasn't quite ready to be done being an athlete. Like everybody out there who's an athlete, you go through this moment, whether you were a high school athlete or a college athlete or just a, you know, or just a weekend warrior, you go through this decision and say, is this something I should still be doing? And you have to make that conscious decision, whether you're going to stop or not. And I had to, I came to that you know, crossroads two days after my elbow surgery, my Tommy John surgery, my last year in, at Florida. And I just decided I wasn't done. And I had a coach in college who had a guy who went on to bobsled, and he always compared us. And next thing I knew, I emailed the Olympic Committee, and, and then all of a sudden, I got emails back, and I was training for bobsled. I mean, that's a really interesting background. How do most bobsledders get introduced? Are they introduced at a younger age, or is it a similar type story? You know, bobsled tends to be a lot of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, has-beens. It's a lot of people who were, they were good enough athletes to be in the NFL, but they couldn't catch a pass. Or they were track athletes like myself, and they were good enough athletes to get to the next level, but they got hurt doing this event or that event. Um, so it's all, it's track and football guys. It's mainly recruited, recruiting tours or stops or through word of mouth through people who did it or just seeing. And now, you know, what we really saw over the last few years was after we, you know, after we won our gold medal in Vancouver and we did, you know, we were on Dave Letterman and we were on the cover of Sports Illustrated and we did all these things. You had people really seeking out bobsled because they saw, you know what, like I can do that sport. Uh, and if I can do it, then I can really do big things. Us winning was really a great springboard for mm. for really increasing the depth of the program. And, and cool runnings, wasn't <laughs> Cool runnings is a great thing for the sport because it's bobsled. Like, let's not have illusions, any illusions. It's not a popular American sport. Mm. It's huge in Germany. It's huge in Europe. Cool runnings put, that, put us on the map. Yeah. So I was at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix in 2010 after we won our gold medal. And myself and Kurt Tomasevich and a couple of the skiers got to take rides in F-16s. And I remember getting there. And one of the pilots, we were out for, we were out for beers. And uh, one of the pilots had said, you know, he mentioned cool runnings. I was like, hey, look, you know what? I won't mention Top Gun and you won't mention cool runnings. <laughs> and he was like, you know what, man? I am a pilot because of Top Gun. So you can talk about it all you want. And it just backfired on me. So. <laughs> well, now you picked it up. At least you had a lesson learned there. Yeah, exactly. 
So you get an F-16, and that's probably a perfect comparison to what some of your turns feel like on a bobsled. Is that correct? Yeah, F-16 is a lot smoother than a bobsled. Oh, wow. You know, it was, I mean, F-16 ride was was incredible. Yeah, and G-forces, and, you know, and those guys, once they hear that you're a bobsledder and you go through Gs, of course, all they want to do is torture you. So <laughs> for an hour and 40-minute ride, I threw up, I only threw up twice. Kurt Tomasevich, I think, lost his lunch, dinner, and then the, <laughs> or the day before. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. Those guys are incredible athletes themselves. So I want to talk about you specifically. You underwent this transition, which is going from a sport which has 10 different events over two days, I read, go yeah. to, to a sport where you only need to do one or two things perfectly for maybe 10 seconds, right? I mean, that's quite the transition. And how did you face that? Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, decathletes are quite often called jack of all trades, master of none. You just have to be good at a lot of things. You, you don't need to be great at one thing. And bobsled is the opposite. As a push athlete, you're a horse and you have five seconds to do your job. <laughs> And in that five seconds, there is no room for error. There is no room for not being focused. So it was quite the different environment where you're out on the track for 12 hours a day, two days in a row, compared to you warm up for an hour and you have five seconds to prove your worth. Uh, and then you go down the bottom of the hill and, as, you know, the driver has got to do his job on the way down. But as a push athlete, and you have some jobs on the way down, but as a push athlete, your, your main job is to accelerate the sled because once you're in, the only thing that's accelerating is gravity. Mm-hmm. You know, I found myself especially towards the end of my career where we had won World Cup championships. I had won winning almost 40 World Cup medals in my career. And towards the end, all you really do is you realize the Olympic Games is really what you want. I had been to two Olympics. You know, I went to three Olympics and, you know, I was an alternate and then, you know, alternate and watched the guys get medals. And then we were USA one. We were supposed to medal and we got seventh. So I was really having a hard time focusing going into my last couple of years, even on race days, because I knew the Olympics were the only thing that mattered to me. And yet in bobsled, there's no room for you to be able to not be focused. Yeah. Uh, so I really learned a discipline of being able to, even when I wasn't focused and my mind was someplace else, really being able to zone in for those short bursts of time to be able to ensure that I did my job, that I didn't hurt myself. Uh, and that the performance was high. And it's been a, an interesting transition out of sport after retiring over four years ago and moving that into my corporate development, my corporate leadership work, and as well as running classroom champions and growing that is being able to knock distractions away because the thing I learned about bobsled or the thing I learned about sport in general, and everybody who's been an athlete realizes this, that no matter what else is happening, the race starts at one o'clock, period. You're off at one o two. It doesn't matter whether you were late getting to the track. It doesn't matter whether your breakfast was no good. It doesn't matter whether you're sore. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you have a headache. The race starts at 102, and there's no excuses that go in the record book. So that's something that I've kind of carried over with me is that idea of when it's game day, it's game day, and that's really all that, that matters. So you mentioned harnessing the focus, and that's much easier said than done. What strategies do you have to really harness focus when you're in that moment? It sounds corny, but I started working with a mental coach my last year, and a guy named Ken Baum out of California. And what we really came up with was being self-aware enough to identify what the distractions were. So where was my mind going hmm. when I was getting distracted? And then having keywords that brought that back in together. So I would say something, you know, as I would head to the line, walk to the line, I would say something and that would remind everything to just come back in. So as long as you can assess where your distractions are coming from and where your mind is going, then it's easy to be able to get that focus back in because you can use triggers that'll help you do that. And is that something you use, I would imagine, outside of athletics nowadays too? Yeah, it's something that it's allowed me to be. And I think, you know, really, honestly, moving over to corporate leadership work and 
learning more about other people's distractions has really helped me focus on my own as well as my classroom champion as well. So what industry did uh, your mental coach come from? Was he strictly working with athletes or is this just some specialist in this field? Because I've thought about this, but I never knew anyone actually did it or, or there was coaches for it. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, he comes from a sport background, but he works with both athletes and corporate leaders. And it's something that I always kind of looked at as like, eh, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. I was a, you know what, I mean, five years, 10 years earlier, I would not have been ready for somebody like that. And yeah, I just didn't want to, I just didn't buy it. I didn't believe in it. Uh, you know what, I can do this myself, whatever. And what I really realized was that even, I mean, the best way I could put it was that three days before our Olympic race in Vancouver, so towards the end of the games, my coach, who I moved to Calgary for like seven years earlier, he was down the mountain uh, with Canadian speed skating at the time. So he wasn't up there, up in the mountains with us. But, you know, we'd talk every couple of days. And I can honestly say that going into that race, I don't think there was one human on the planet that knew how to push a bobsled better than me. I don't think there was one human on the planet that knew how to load into a bobsled better than me. I don't think there was one human on the planet that knew how to lead a bobsled team better than me. Yet, three days before the games, I was on the phone with my coach and we were talking about what the warm-up was going to look like. I've been warming up for 20 years, but we were on the phone talking about what the warm-up was going to look like, you know, what the timing should look like, and just having that person that you can bounce ideas off of. Even though I knew I knew more about mm. that stuff at the time than he did, you know, he would probably disagree. But regardless, <laughs> you know, I think that's the lesson that sport really taught me. So especially as I, you know, I had realized that and started working with somebody else on other things that even though I know myself better than anyone else, I now find it perfectly appropriate. I mean, I have mentors myself that I work with now um, that are in different industries, but are leaders in their own fields who, you know, help coach me through issues at Classroom Champions. You've mentioned your mentors and, and them helping you make decisions throughout this whole interview already. And you go back to that initial decision of, you know, what do I do after my athletics aren't going the way they should. You talk to a mentor and now you're talking to him again, even when you think you know everything. Mm-hmm. How important are mentors and, and other people that are more experienced in your life to help guide you through? Well, I mean, you're preaching to the converted. I'm preaching to the converted here for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what Classroom Champions is about. Classroom Champions is about utilizing the knowledge of Olympians and Paralympians and connecting them with kids and, and letting the athletes talk to kids about not just, hey, go set goals, but here's how I set a goal. Here's what a short-term, medium-term, long-term is. Here's what happens when I don't reach it and being specific. So I think as long as you have, if you have people who not only can tell you, don't tell me what to do, tell me how to do it. And that's the same thing. And I, I do the same thing with anybody that I work with or anybody that I think that, you know, our athletes, we encourage them. That's how they should be talking to kids is don't just tell them to do something, give them proactive solutions to go do that. And I guess that that really comes from a sport background where I moved to Canada, I moved to Canada to a place where I had no job. I had no money at the time. I had no car. I had no, no place to stay, but I had a coach up here Hmm. and I, you know, came for a guy who I would do something and every single thing I did, I turned and he would tell me what I did wrong, but he wouldn't just tell me what I did wrong. He'd tell me how to fix it. Sometimes that's lacking. I find in the real world when I moved in the quote unquote real world, which is what Olympic athletes call not Olympic world. <laughs> you know, you find that it's a hard time. It's a hard thing to find somebody that will actually give you critical feedback and do it in a productive way because people are afraid to tell people they're doing something wrong. You see that in the corporate world, corporate environment quite often. So, yeah. Before we get into classroom champions, I just wanted to highlight one thing that you said there, which caught me off guard. I half agree with you. And that was that you need somebody to tell you the steps uh, to take along the way. And something that I've found through my short life so far is that 
when I get thrown into things that I'm not comfortable with, then I learn a lot about myself and figuring out my own path. How do you balance those two ideas? You know, I, I agree with you. I think that what we're talking about is not something brand new to anybody. So I think if it's something you've never, like you said, if you've never done it before, I can't explain to you what it means to go down a bobsled track and what you should do when you're in the sled until you've actually tried it. Then we can have the conversation about what that about what happens when you're in there. So I think once you've been able to, you know, even for kids, um, but adults that are, are all the same, that you know, by the time we're in our 20s or 30s or 40s, we've done most things in most activities. And I think once you've been able to have the flavor, then it's time for somebody to be able to tell me how you do it. And I can use that as a frame for how I can do it. Gotcha. Yep. So let's get into classroom champions. So describe to our listeners really quickly. It takes these top performing athletes and then they'll pair them with students in high need schools and use virtual meetings and then also video lessons to help motivate the students and talk about things like goal setting and dreaming big, recognizing their potential. Steve, this sounds awesome. And I'm I'm sure you've had a ton of great successes. It's been amazing. You know what? We started it for a few reasons. And I say we, my sister and I started it. We started it because I was living this life that the 10-year-old kid in us would have dreamt about. Mm -hmm. You know, my my friends were Olympians. I was training for the Olympics. But we want, and we wanted to do something impactful with. And at the same time, I had gone into schools and, you know, we've all been there, whether we're an athlete or whether we're a prominent person in society or whether we're just, you know, we, we go and volunteer to school. You go into a school, you give a talk, you talk to some kids and then you leave and you never see those kids again. And as you know, we know learning doesn't happen in one stop. It takes repetition. It takes relationship. It takes kids trusting this person, not just looking up to them, but trusting them to really see it. So what we do is we use technology to create that relationship kids become friends with their athlete. So these kids, you know, you talk to our kids and they're friends with Meryl Davis and Charlie White. Because of Meryl Davis and Charlie White, every single month they send them a different lesson on something that kids want to learn how to do, but teachers have a hard time talking about. And kids honestly have a hard time talking about it. From goal setting to perseverance, the community to to, to fair play. As a kid, it's not cool to talk about fair play. It's not cool to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But when an Olympian or Olympic medalist has talked about it, all of a sudden it's okay. It's cool. You know, if these people that are that are famous or if, as I've learned, if you're on YouTube, you're famous, are talking about it, then it gives the teachers an excuse to be able to have that conversation with kids and get them excited about it and get them doing things to then show the athletes. So the kids then produce things, show the athletes. From the, so from the athlete's perspective, there's no more of that. I went into school, you know what, and if one or two kids listened, it was worth my time. Uh, there's no more of that. The athletes now can tell you what difference they're making because they see it every month. And they do live chat. They do live, you know, Google Hangouts or Skypes and sometimes occasionally visits and we have we take metrics because as an athlete, we train to get results, period. We do not practice and practice, practice and never get to compete. So the same thing with classroom champions. We don't just do these things with kids. We want to see what difference we're actually making. It's just not about giving them a cool experience. It's about actually changing their lives. So we see kids who are now significantly better at goal setting. They have a much better grasp of what perseverance is, and they have those skills now. They've increased digital literacy, they're, so they're better. They're using technology more often. So we're working with kids who are environments who don't have that person in their life. They quite often don't have the role model in their life that can tell them, here's the way to do things. And if you do these things, you can really succeed. You know, they usually have people, they quite often have people around them. And this goes for kids in any environment. But, you know, adults are beaten down sometimes. Mm -hmm. We really are. We've had some things happen to us. And, you know, I think the kids being able to learn from their Olympians is something that 
is inspiring to them and it's also inspiring to the teachers. So it's been a really great thing to see grow. You know, next year we'll be in about 100 schools between Canada and the U.S. Uh, and Costa Rica and the organization's just growing like, like a wildflower right now. Something else that resonates with me especially is when I was a kid, like you said, I'd have someone come to the school and talk and I didn't really think of these people as real people as being fairly normal. And and just when I started this podcast with Ben, we talked to athletes and we talked to Olympians and we talked to these people that are almost fictional to most people. And so we really get to know them and yeah. we see that, you know, they're they're just normal guys they're, or girls and they have these really interesting lives. But it's just very cool that you can bring these kids in, have them learn about these athletes' lives and say, wow, maybe I could be one of these athletes. Mm-hmm. These are real people. The first video that the athletes send is not a lesson. It's an introduction video. And we, we coach the athletes to talk about talk about the things that kids care about. From what's your favorite color to what's your best friend's name to do you have a dog to what's your favorite food? Make the, you know, bring yourself down off the podium, down off of the stage and bring you, yourself into their classroom at eye level with them so they can see that if you're a real person and you have, you like the same things that, you know, what was your favorite subject when you were in school? What didn't you like about things when you were a kid? And all of a sudden, these kids then can gravitate towards this person because they realize, like exactly like you said, that this person is not a fictional character on television. You know, one of the things we wanted to show kids when we started Classroom Champions was it wasn't just two and a half weeks on television. It was a process to get there. And that's exactly, I mean, you hit the nail on the head is what we, we really try to do. And our, you know, we have one of our metrics is one of our survey questions is like, is asking kids, do you feel that your athlete's your friend or is your athlete your friend? And about 90% of our kids say yes. Mm. So that's pretty cool that these kids now feel like that's happening. And when we know that, then all these other really like research bound things happen to kids when they have good, positive relationships with adults. Yeah, very cool. And our listeners like to hear stories. Now, sometimes these are really extreme stories from the mountains. But for you, can you tell us a heartwarming story of something that just really hit you? this program yeah absolutely so we uh we have some paralympians in the program as well so we have olympians and paralympians and we see some really neat things with the paralympians and one of the coolest things that i've i've heard and our teachers will call us or email us and you know just tell us just like neat things that happened and one of the coolest things happened over in portland a couple years ago and one of our teachers named heatherly chambers who were actually hiring for classroom champions next year and heatherly had brought her kids to the zoo and it was you know it was one of those zoo field trips where the entire city goes to the zoo and it's just a madhouse. And then she had a kindergarten class. Yeah, she actually had young kids that were in the program. And their athlete was a woman named Mary Allison Milford, who was a wheelchair basketball player for the U.S. And her class was standing there, and a group of kids walked by. And as that group of kids walked by, one of her little kids came up, this little boy named Michael. Michael came up, and Michael looked up and you know, said, Miss Chambers, Miss Chambers, do you remember those Olympics videos we watched? And she was like, well, of course. We've watched four or five of them by now. And she goes, that little girl that walked by didn't have a hand. I wonder what sport she does. Oh, wow. And it really hit us that, you know, these relationships these kids are making are real. I mean, talk about empathy. Talk about, you know, changing the mindset of that. That kid for the rest of their life is going to look at disability in a totally different way than we do. I mean, I grew up, both my parents were special ed teachers. I have a very unique view of disability, yet I still don't think that when I see somebody with a disability. Mm-hmm. But that little kid for the rest of their life now will think that they will they will see ability where others see disability so you know it's things like that happening where really shows us that kids these days you know we as adults we need a cup of coffee or a face-to-face meeting to to really grow a relationship kids don't need that skype google hangout video interactions 
those are real for them. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's the way that kids are. So let's utilize it and create some good relationships mm-hmm. with people that are pretty amazing. There's so many different things that you probably didn't even expect starting this. So it's so cool that you guys are having so much success. And I think the biggest thing you're trying to get out of it is teach kids how to be really good goal setters too, because that's pretty much how you've gotten to where you are every day when you wake up, you know, you go for those goals, you, you take the steps that you need to take. So what resource do you use to keep your actions moving forward towards your goals? You know, for me, it winds up being a time management thing. I use, it's, I think, honestly, the simplest tool that I use and not necessarily a resource, but I abuse my Google Calendar to the point where that's been my best resource for keeping my goals moving forward is that when something pops in my head, I have one of those brains that just random things will pop up whenever, you know, I tried to put, I tried to figure out how to put a whiteboard in my shower because a lot of things happen in there. (laughs) I've heard that a lot, actually. Yeah, I've never heard that. I like that. So I'm trying to still figure out how I can do that without it, you know, wiping away or steaming away. (laughs) Um, So if anybody out there knows a waterproof uh, whiteboard, give me a shout. It's a gear recommendation. (laughs) So what I do is I wind up putting a lot of anything time those things put in. I know that in the evenings I'll have time to sit and reflect on my day. And so usually from about eight o'clock to nine o'clock in my Google calendar are tons of notes or tons of things that I just put in there. And I don't just make a voice. I don't put a note and have like a little note app or anything like that. I make it so it forces the information to come back to me. So I think that's something that I've really gotten into the habit of. And it's been super productive for me because I don't lose thoughts. I don't lose you know, the path that I want to take with things because I have these constant reminders that keep popping in. Now, is that the best way to do things? I don't know. But that's the first use of a resource that comes to my mind when you ask me that question. I like it. Yeah. And for our listeners, just remember who's talking right now. I mean, he's got a gold medal. He beat the Germans, which no one has done in a while. So... <laughs> That's that's great stuff. Yeah, cool. And just to to wrap things up, Steve, since we talked about problem solving um, and time management, what is one problem that you're facing today, and what steps are you taking uh, to resolve it? We're growing an organization, so we're growing classroom champions, and we're going from a group of volunteers to a staff. So I think that's the biggest challenge that we have right now. Is is as we're making that transition as an organization, we're going from something small to something that is becoming more significant and having more impact and influence. So I think our biggest challenge right now is sticking to the principles of which we were founded on and of which we've had a lot of success and doing that as we grow, which is no different. And if anybody out there has grown a business or is an entrepreneur or anything like that, it's no different whether you're building a nonprofit or a for-profit business, that as you grow, you wind up having some identity crises. So I think that's our biggest challenge. So I think the ways, the steps that I'm trying to lay in to really solve that is ensure that as we bring people on, we bring on the right people who fill those gaps uh, in the right way, not just to fill bodies. So we're not just throwing numbers of people at the problem. We're not just throwing money at the issue. We're doing it in a very thoughtful way and a very measured way. So I think that's that's our first step to really trying to ensure that we, you know, we keep the culture and we keep the impact from the organization that we really, really were founded upon. So I'm excited. I think it's fun. I think the the challenges are awesome. It's a totally different challenge than trying to beat the Germans or trying to do something that the country hasn't done in a long time. You know, we have an organization that nobody's ever done before. There's not a model for how to do this and how to have impact in this way. So I'm excited. Yeah, well, we're rooting for you because for what what you've done already, it's just been awesome. And for any of our other listeners out there, if you want to hear more of what Steve's up to, check out his website, stevemesler.com. You can also find any other resources from this talk today on our website, mtnmeister.com. 
check out Steve's Meister profile. We're so thankful for you coming on the show today and keep up all the great work. Thanks, guys. This was this was fun. I uh, you know I didn't have, haven't had a chance to talk about bobsled like we did at the beginning for a while. <laughs> so that's a blast. And I think your audience and your listeners on this is right up the alley that I love to do work with and love to partner with people like that. So thanks for having me on and uh, best of luck with the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. Meister fans, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Steve Mesler. Russell and I were really excited to have our first gold medalist on the show. Yeah, it's definitely great to have the credibility of a gold medal athlete on the show. Also, Ben and I were thinking, which is completely random, is you guys don't even really know what we look like during these interviews. It's actually kind of ridiculous. We have the headphones, we have the mics, we have our computers. Ben likes to tell people we're not wearing pants, but we are wearing pants. That's a fact. So we're going to post a picture on Instagram of Ben and I while we're doing our interview. So Ben, who do we have tomorrow on the show? Tomorrow we welcome Tate Chamberlain. Tate is one of the more artistic guests that we've ever had on the show. Wait till you hear what he's doing and how it relates to the outdoors industry. 